Now, if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 34. This is the same psalm that we uh, read from for our call to worship this morning. Read the first few verses. We'll pick up where we left off with our Old Testament reading, reading verses 4 through 8, and then skipping down to the last verse, verse 22. This can be found on page 447 in your pew Bibles or 869 of the large print pew Bibles. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. We thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you that we can come to you. How your word tells us that uh, Jesus has made the way open, that we can approach your throne of grace boldly and with confidence, knowing that because he has made that way open, we can come to you without fear of condemnation, without fear of judgment, because that price has already been paid. But that we can come to you as beloved children. That we can have life with you. That we can learn from you. That we can be empowered by you to live life as you have intended it to be lived. We ask that even this morning as, you, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would continue your work, your work of transformation in our lives. Changing us from the inside out into the people that you created us to be. As we continue in relationship with you. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 34. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste. And see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In verse 22, the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. And turning to John chapter 15. A little longer uh, reading here than that last one. John 15 verses 1 through 17 We have Jesus talking with his disciples. It's on page 876 in your pew Bibles, or 1676 in the large print. And Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other. Love each other, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Turning then to Hebrews chapter 5. We'll pick up in chapter 5, verse 11, and then go through chapter 6, verse 12. It's a day, God willing. And where it picks up is actually kind of in the middle of a train of thought. I'm going to back up a little bit and sort of summarize uh, what's been going on in in this whole letter. And uh, we might see our place in it as well. We don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews was. But we know they're writing to a group of people who, uh, though they had been Jewish, Hebrews, nationally, religiously, yet had been converted. They had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as their Savior. But the, the political climate was changing. The religious situation was making it more difficult to continue to be followers of Jesus in the same way. And it was the Jesus issue that was causing problems. And so there was the temptation for people to, well, we'll just keep all the rest but just let Jesus go. And so what we've been seeing throughout this whole letter so far is the way in which the author is saying, if you let Jesus go, you have nothing left. If you try to keep everything except Jesus, you still end up with nothing. And so it keeps making the case over and over again. And last week what we saw is that one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons why this is the case is because what Jesus did on the cross, through his death and resurrection, is opened the way for sinful people to come to a holy God. That we could not do before. And it said that, you know, always before there had been priests that would go in to go between God and people because we couldn't approach him directly because we deserved to die. It says, but, but those priests had a problem. All of them were sinning too. And so they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And all of this was really just by way of pointing forward to the one who would come and take care of the problem completely. And that that's what Jesus did. That he didn't have to offer any sacrifices for his own sins, but yet, and yet he was sacrificed for our sins. That the way is open. 
You know, if you read in Matthew, it actually says when Jesus died on the cross, there were several remarkable things that happened. And one of those is that the uh, curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. That curtain that separated where, uh, where people could not, you couldn't go past there. You couldn't even look past there to see where the presence of God dwelt. And yet, when Jesus dies, that way is made open. And so, the author of the Hebrews is saying, if this is what Jesus did, if he made the way that was not there before, if he is the one who has provided access to God in a way that we've never had, and it's all through him, you can't set that aside and still and still be in any kind of right relationship with God. This is what he's been talking about. These, by the way, are the same temptations that have gone on ever since. It's really, uh, it's really easy to find yourself tempted to just let Jesus slide at times when that seems to be the only obstacle between what I want out of this world, whether um, respect from friends and neighbors, family, etc., whether it's promotion at work, that sort of thing. You say, you know, if it weren't for Jesus, I could, I could get those things. So maybe I'll just let him go, and I'll go after these things of the world, and then, you know, maybe that'll still be good enough somehow. As the whole book of Hebrews says, no, no, and again, no. So as it's been, he's been explaining this, he continues, chapter 5, verse 11, it says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make clear, it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. All right. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who still lives on milk being anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Can you imagine if you had a little child, kindergarten, teaching the ABCs, you go through the alphabet and keep going over it and over it, and they get it. And they get the ABCs down. And they go on to first grade. And they're starting to, you know, the class is learning to read. But this one kid says, I don't want to learn to read yet. I want to go over the ABCs again. Can we just keep doing that? And on in second grade and third grade. And by the time they're a senior in high school, for some reason they're still getting passed along. I guess they're really good at sports or something. Anyway, um, ignore that. (laughs) They're senior in high school. And a teacher assigns them some book to read, and they say, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm still working on, still going over my ABCs. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you should still be doing that. They go on, they go on to college. And they make it all the way through college, still, somehow, not ever learning to read. And they graduate from college, and they go, and they get a job as a teacher. And it comes time to teach a student how to read, and they say, well, actually, kind of embarrassed to admit this. Um, I've never really learned to read myself. I'm still working on the ABCs. <laughs> How long exactly have you been working on those ABCs? 
That's what the author of the Hebrews is saying. I've been going over and over just the basic message of what the gospel is. And you guys have been hearing this for years. You should be ready to teach it, not just because you know it, but because you should have known it for so long and you should have been living it in your life so well that you know it inside and out. You should be able to teach others easily. And yet, when I say, hey, why don't you go teach this to somebody? say, well, I don't know that I really have all the... Uh, all of it down quite yet. I think I just need to go over it one more time. Once more around those ABCs. It says, no. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. You know, when babies are first born, it is completely appropriate for them to live on nothing but milk. That's good. They're not ready for solid food yet. You don't start them in <laughs> first day they've been born. You, how about a steak? Maybe a cheeseburger? No. But the time will come when they will grow, and they will grow teeth, and they will be ready to eat solid food, and their uh, internal organs will be ready to process solid food. And if they were to continue to try to just live on nothing but milk, something's wrong there. Because all of us begin our Christian life as spiritual babies. And that's fine, and that's good, and that's appropriate. But if you've been in the faith for very long, you know that there's a point of uh, maturing, of growing in the faith. And there's something that this has to do with righteousness. The solid food that is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, this has to do with just living it out. It's not just a matter of knowing what the basic message of the gospel is, but of actually saying, if, if this way between us and God has been made open by Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that we now have access to God, that we can have life with him, How then does that change us? How does that change the way that we treat our spouses, our kids, our bosses, our employees, our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors, even our enemies? And as we continue to be changed by putting it into practice, we mature. And so he says, let us then, therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. When he says the elementary teachings about Christ, this does not mean, as some people have taken it this way, wrongly, that to leave behind, uh, move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ means, oh, well, those things about Jesus are just elementary, so once you've learned about Jesus, then you can move on to the real stuff. No, that's not what this means. This means there are elementary truths about Jesus, and then you learn more as you go about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In the same way, there are elementary uh, truths of math, and when you leave those behind, or when you move beyond them, it's not that you leave them behind, that you move beyond them, it's that you're building on what you've already learned, and you go much farther. That's what he's saying with Jesus. And so he says, not laying again the foundation of the following things, which I'll read in a second. 
but that there's this foundation, foundational truths about Jesus. Yes, it's good to know those things. Yes, we must know those things. But the purpose of a foundation is to be built upon. If you spend your whole life just redoing the foundation over and over, but you never build on it, something's wrong with that. And so he says, uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So these are all important things that make the foundation that then is to be built on. And then we get into a very tricky section. So stay with me. By the way, by way of aside, I actually heard about a um, pastor recently, Alistair Begg, shared this uh, in a sermon where he said a pastor was preaching through the book of Romans. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are particularly tricky passages. And he said this guy uh, preached straight through Romans 1 through 8, then took a month of vacation and came back and picked up with chapter 12. (laughs) I thought a lot about that this week when approaching this particular passage. Uh, we can make our way through it, but we gotta, you got to stay, stay with me on it. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. And gives a little image for that. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. All right. Generally, when this passage gets mentioned, there is a phrase that comes to mind for just about everybody who's heard this phrase before. The phrase is, once saved, always saved. I don't know how many of you that sprung to mind immediately. Once saved, always saved. And so when it says this, when it says, you know, it's impossible for those who have gone through all these things, who have been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and have fallen away. And everybody says, wait a second. What does this mean? Does this mean that we can be saved and then lose our salvation? And this question gets talked about a lot. But, I'll tell you this. There's really not anything wrong with the question itself. And it's a pretty easy one to answer biblically. The problem comes in with the attitude with which we ask it. Here's what I mean. If what we're really asking, if what we're really asking is, look, I don't really want to deal with God at all, but I also don't want to go to hell when I die. So I prayed a prayer when I was in church camp when I was like a freshman in high school. And since then, I've had nothing to do with him, and I don't want anything to do with him. And I just want you to tell me that once saved, always saved. So if that counts, then I'm good, and I can live however I want, away from God the whole rest of my life, and just not have to worry about hell when I die. Is that, are we good there? 
Now, <laughs> thank you. No, that's not, that's not good at all. And this is, um, but this is often how this question is posed. Is it true that once saved, always saved? Because I just want to know that I don't have to deal with God. This is not talking about people who lose their salvation. This is identifying who it is that's really saved. And that's a big difference. And so you say, you know, if you had some prayer, you prayed, and yet you want nothing to do with God, we may want to reevaluate what it is we mean, what it means to be saved. What it is that we've been saved from, and what it is that we've been saved for. There is a purpose for our salvation. It's not just that we have been saved from hell, though that's certainly a part of it, but that we're even saved from our own sinful natures that we know deserve death. And that we have been saved for a purpose, that we have been saved for a life with God that glorifies Him and that bears fruit in this life. This is where that agricultural metaphor comes in, one that you probably uh, can identify with even in, in your own dreams. The land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and you go, oh, I like that. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop. That's the one that receives the blessing of God. But it says the rain, the land that receives the rain, often falling on it, same land, same rain, but if all it does is produces thorns and thistles, it's not achieving the purpose for which the rain has been sent. So here's what this passage is really about. And I think the key comes in, it says, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. You remember when Jesus was going around teaching and preaching and healing and performing miracles that there were several different groups around. There were those who followed him, who worshipped him. There was the woman who broke expensive, uh, broke a jar of expensive oil and was pouring it on him, who was wiping his, uh, his feet, worshiping him. There were those who, when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? You know, they said, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. But there were also those who were around, who heard the same things, who saw the same things, and said, this guy needs to die. he did die. And to both of those groups, his death on the cross meant very different things. For the one, those that rejected him, it was nothing more than the execution of a common criminal. But, but for those who recognized who Jesus really was and who understood that this was his way of opening the way to God for all of those of us who needed that way open. We see Jesus on the cross, and we see what he's doing there, giving himself willingly, even though he didn't deserve it, for us, because of his love for us. And we see that, and when we see it, instead of saying execution of common criminal, we see it and we say, this is a reason for praise. This is a reason for gratitude. This is a reason to fall down and worship. 
And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is if you have been exposed to the word of God, if you have heard preaching and teaching, if you have been exposed to who Jesus is and you have seen who he really is, and you say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that, what other hope do you have? What other way is there? If you reject the only way to God, if you reject the only way to the author of life, the giver of life, what other hope do you have? I think this is given as a warning. A warning against hardening our hearts. Also given as a way of checking ourselves, of self-evaluation. That we would take some time to consider, what do I mean when I tell people I trust in Jesus? If someone were to ask, do you trust in Jesus? And you say, yes, I do. What do you mean by that? Is it just an answer? Or is it something that actually has an impact on your life? That changes the way that you live? Is it something that has caused a conversion and that has where there is new life? Where you have a new purpose and a new power and a new strength? And I think it's good for all of us to consider these things. But we don't stop there tonight. He continues on. And he says, this is, this is good. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped the people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. So that what so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Things that have to do with salvation. In other words, he says, I know you. I have seen a change of life in you. And so while I will say, on the one hand, if we are to reject Jesus, we become just like the crowds that were calling for his crucifixion. We are subjecting him to public disgrace because we're turning uh, what is meant for praise and glory. And we're turning it into nothing but mockery and ridicule. He says, "That that may be the case for some. But that is not the case for you. Not if you are those who have been changed and who are actually living this out. Who are not just learning things about Jesus, but who are putting them into practice in your life. Who are allowing yourselves to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Who are being changed into those who are, what does he say here? The love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Becoming less and less self-centered and more and more centered around Jesus. And because your life is centered on him, you start reaching out and helping his people. 
And not just that you once did that a long time ago, but that you're continuing to do this. Because we don't want you to become lazy. But to continue in this life. Continue living through faith. Continue in diligence to the very end. Now, does this mean that we have to be perfect in all these areas? No. And here's the great news. I mentioned that phrase earlier, once saved, always saved. That is, that is not good if asked because you want to see how far away from God you can get and still get a get out of hell free card at the end. But, if you are wanting to be as close to God as you possibly can and yet you keep stumbling and falling along the way, that is a great question to ask. Wait, is it true that once saved, always saved? And the answer the Bible gives is an absolute yes. Yes, as long as you are still headed towards God, you will stumble and fall all along the way. But what it says is keep going, keep going, keep going. Do not give up, do not turn away, just keep on. And he will keep you to the very end. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And the work that he's done on the cross has already been completed. There's nothing that we can do to add to that. There's nothing we can do to take away from that. All we can do is live in light of it, trusting Jesus fully. Or we can choose something else in the world to trust. And the choice is ours to be made every day. As we've said earlier throughout Hebrews, the message is one of keep on keeping on. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I keeping on today? Not that we're earning anything from God, but am I living with God? Am I living life with Him today? Am I becoming a different person today because I'm living with Him? Am I trusting in Jesus today to be and become the person that He created me to be? Have life with Him forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.